Hi, I'm Jo Litson. Welcome to The Thinking Traveller, a series that draws on the passions, expertise and knowledge of Academy Travel's tour leaders to bring a wealth of insight to your travels, one topic at a time. In 2001, on a visit to Istanbul, Jennifer Lawless and her husband discovered nine young Australians buried in a Commonwealth cemetery. They'd clearly fought at Gallipoli. Wondering why they were there, Dr. Lawless began a 10-year study for her PhD, trekking over 8,000 kilometers through Turkey to locate prisoner of war camps. She also pored over Turkish manuscripts, which had never been translated into English before. Uncovering a large number of myths and misconceptions about the treatment of Australian Gallipoli prisoners of war by the Turks, she channeled her research into a book called Kismet, the story of the Gallipoli prisoners of war, which was published in 2015. Jennifer Lawless is a historian with expertise spanning modern and ancient history. She has co-authored over 10 books, spent 13 years as an inspector of history with the New South Wales Board of Studies, and received the New South Wales Premier's Award for History. She joins us today to discuss the treatment of Gallipoli prisoners of war. Welcome, Jennifer. Thank you so much for coming to talk about your discoveries with us. Um, can you tell us how you first became interested in the Gallipoli prisoners of war? I didn't mean to in the first place, Joe. And, and firstly, though, thank you for having me. Um, in 2001, I was in Istanbul visiting my husband's family. And we'd had a rather late night drinking raki, which is not a good thing to do. And uh, we're walking home and he mentioned that he thought that there was a Commonwealth cemetery nearby. And I was rather sceptical. You know, why would one be on the southern shore of Katakui, the southern shore of uh, Istanbul? And um, we went back the next morning and found this beautiful Commonwealth cemetery, beautifully tended, and uh, found nine graves of young men that obviously had uh, died at Gallipoli. So it got you thinking, did it? How did they did. get there? And Absolutely. What had happened? Why were they there? Um, so far from Gallipoli, basically where most of the graves are. And, um, you know, what, what on earth induced them to be there in the first place? It's a lovely cemetery. It also has some Crimean graves and also a beautiful monument to Florence Nightingale. So it's a lovely, quiet little corner in the madness of Katakui. But from there you decided you wanted to find out well, more. from there um, I thought, what on earth am I going to do with this? Because I went home, found the nine um, from the National Archives and it went from there, thinking, well, no one's ever really done much on this. So it became my PhD and took 10 years. I was working. I would like to say I was working full time at that stage as well. Right. But even so, 10 years, that's a real commitment, isn't it? Oh, it's madness. <laughs> it's madness. <laughs> um, it, it was, it took a long, long time. But, you know, finding the things, first of all, took several years and it continued for that 10. So. Yeah, took a long time. So where did you actually start? Well, we started, first of all, um, with the National Archives, getting the actual individual um, material on each of the soldiers. And at that stage, you had to pay for them and they'll come by mail. So it was really exciting, you know, to get each one. And um, from then on to the War Memorial in Canberra for months, a time, not, not all together, you know, over the years, uh, months probably in the War Memorial, 
um, battalion diaries, the photographs, you know, there was so much, and also some of the memoirs. So in Australia, that's where I started. Um, then in Britain, um, at their major archives there, the military archives, um, and the state libraries all around Australia. So, And also then, of course, Turkey. And um, that was the difficulty because I don't read Ottoman Turkish and hardly anyone does anymore. And uh, I wasn't allowed into the archives, so I had to find out what was there and send my husband in because I think he's probably one of the only people in Australia that actually translates Ottoman Turkish. How useful. Well, he says that he's useless degree, actually, he calls it, um, which is very useful to me. He's just hoping I don't find anything else to do, I think, from now on. So your husband is, t- is Turkish? Yes, yes. So where did you meet him? In Turkey, with oh. my first trip in Turkey. Right, okay. Um, and um, when I got back and announced that I'd met this man, um, I remember my daughter saying, most people bring back a carpet mother. <laughs> So that was that. That was that. So when you went to Turkey then, you mm. you moved around, you travelled around, you went to different places where the camps had been? Well, we once once we had put in place basically the names uh, of most of the camps, we then set off. We had um, um, a scholarship from the Australian War Memorial and um, the Endeavour scholarship as well later on. And we went 8,000 kilometres around Turkey finding these sites. Sometimes we found, you know, exactly as they were described other, otherwise. Um, sometimes people just said, look, we didn't know anything about this. And quite often I was interviewed by local newspapers because they didn't know anything about it. So it was quite an adventure. So you were finding all kinds of information as you went. Was some of it conflicting? I mean, were some of the memoirs conflicting with oh, other absolutely, memoirs? absolutely. And when we look at some of the... Um, the later memoirs that were written when the men came back, yes, um, there was conflicting um, because initially what we found was that many myths and misconceptions, um, some saying the treatment was the same as under uh, Japanese in World War II or, or the Germans and very little had actually been written as, as history. There were memoirs, there were letters, you know, there was all sorts of other material but not looking at it as a whole. Um, some of them were saying that 80% died of neglect. Um, others, you know, 79% died. Even official figures initially from the Australian government were saying that uh, 75% had died, and yet that wasn't the case. What we did find is that of the 67 at Gallipoli, and I wasn't looking at other fields where there were some captured, that basically 65% returned home. Gee, that's quite a difference, isn't it? Huge and... difference, yes. But there hadn't been really at that stage any broader history bringing together everything. And you can understand why some of them came home and, you know, wrote as they did, etc. But um, not having the full range of sources made such a difference. So can you tell us what you discovered about the lives they did lead? And I suppose, you know, the lower ranks, it was very different to... The officers. Yes. So, so what about the, the lower ranks? How were they treated? Okay, well, obviously the majority captured um, were the lower ranks. Generally they were captured because they'd been wounded. So they were taken to field hospitals first behind the Turkish lines. Some died there, but uh, there's no real evidence of who they were. Um, the locals still say, yes, look, there's graves up over the hill somewhere, but they don't know where. 18% died in Turkish hosp- field hospitals almost straight away from their wounds. 
13.5% died in camp hospitals later on, of epidemics. Um, one from a rock fall. A poor man was asleep in his little bed and the, they dislodged a huge rock and it went through the roof and squashed him. That was very sad. And another 4% died in hospitals connected to the camps. So altogether, you know, there were epidemics raging through Turkey at that stage. Once they got out into the work camps, they were better off. Um, initially, uh, they were fed food the same as the Turkish soldiers, and they were horrified at this because um, they used to have big communal platters, and one of them said, they tried to feed us what you feed chooks on. So it was obviously tabbouleh or something like that. And, so many uh, vegetarian, I suppose. Yes, very vegetarian. And, and Aussie men, you know, at that stage weren't used to this. So they thought it was, they thought they were being put upon as, as prisoners, you know, to be fed this stuff. And also there was a couple of months of retribution because uh, the Turkish government was complaining about the treatment of Turkish prisoners by the British in Egypt. So there was, um, you know, at one stage, you know, they were in, aren't, weren't in very good accommodation. But once they moved out into the camps, they could actually start to form little groups. Money started to come in from the Australian government through the Red Cross. They were able to go out to supermarkets to buy their own food, cook the food, and they were much better off then, uh, food-wise anyway. Some of the camps, if they were in just transient camps, their tents were very cold in winter. Um, but generally when they're in the major camps, they're much better off. Obviously there was influenza, other diseases rife through the countryside at that stage because Turkey was, wasn't doing well during the war. And several were punished um, for insubordination by being belted like they would in the Turkish army. So, But that was about the worst of it, actually. The Red Cross was wonderful. They were sending them from London uh, through the Australian Red Cross set up there. And they had food, clothing, money, all sorts of treats were sent to them and, and clothing. I showed you the photograph of the ill-assorted clothes, but at least, you know, they had warm coats and boots and hats and things. So um, not nearly as bad as some of them later on wrote about. Yeah, because they don't look at all skeletal, do they? I mean, they may not have liked the food, but they were being fed and they were being kept warm yes, mostly. they weren't. Um, several wrote in their... Um, memoirs when they came home, we were skeletal when we left. And so people have picked up on that, but it wasn't the case at all. You know, and I've got a number of photos of a whole gamut of them, I suppose, and that's just not the case. Um, not eating, you know, beef steak and et cetera, like they would have liked to, but, you know, they, had, they did have food. So were they made to work? Yes, they were. The lower ranks were. Um, they worked on road construction sometimes, um, building tunnels and the Berlin to Baghdad railway line. And they were under German engineers at that stage. So they had quite a good community. We got to one of those camps at Belamedic, away over to the east of Turkey, surrounded by beautiful mountains. It would have been really cold in winter, I'd imagine. But they had little huts and things. And, um, you know, they, they did pretty well, actually when they were at Bellamedic. Some of them had, well, one kept a camera and recorded aspects of it, and another um, Australian actually became the head clerk there, and he had several people working for him and his own uh, little flat as well. He was queried about that when he got home, by the way. Another thing at Bellamedic particularly, uh, they had local inns and restaurants that they celebrated birthdays. Several returned home drunk, 
and were put in the clink because they were through rocks at the guards trying to bring them back. Um, and there was a local brothel, Madame Clara, I think they used to call her. But that was never in the letters, surprisingly. Surprisingly. Yes, surprisingly. So um, they were allowed to they were allowed to attend to did they Yes, for special occasions. They weren't and they used to right. well, whether or not they snuck off or what, but they used to go into the village quite often. Um, yes, but that wasn't written home to to mother or, no. or wife at the time. So what about sport? Did they get out and did they, they have entertainment did. as well? And and what surprises me if they were so starved, etc., they generally beat the Turkish guards. Sometimes at football, at soccer. Always at cricket, of course, because the Turks didn't have a clue about cricket. But yes, they used to have football, um, they'd have race days, they had all sorts of things. So obviously, and, and one man always um, won the 100 metres. So they weren't in such bad nick if they could do that. No. What mm. about the officers then? Well, that was a totally different thing. They were generally given their own houses and they always had uh, one of the lower ranks serving several of them at a time. The main thing about, well, Afian Karahissa was the, one of the major spots they used to stay at. They didn't have to work, so boredom uh, was the main issue for them there. They had a quite a, an interesting range, actually. They had plays and concerts, coffee at the local inn. I was shown at a little place called Geddes. We had a lovely old historian take us around, and he showed us still this beautiful old tree, oak tree, where they used to sit and have coffee with the locals. And they had visiting dignitaries quite often. Some hunted with the locals, so they were allowed to go out and they're in the middle of nowhere, so they couldn't have gone anywhere. But they hunted with the locals, uh, drank coffee. They had very elaborate plays and concerts were put on. Sir Leonard Woolley, who went on to excavate Ur, was the the main seamstress. Suppose you wouldn't call him a seamstress, but he made Taylor. The, Taylor. Oh, he made Taylor, the but... clothes, beautiful um, embroidered clothes, and they had wonderful plays that they used to put on. And the locals used to come to watch, and um, you know they'd put on special performances. And one young man, there's a beautiful painting of Sonia, you know, in this glorious, glorious uh, dress. Beautiful young woman, in reality, was a young British officer. Um, who had to be guarded later on by various smitten officers. <laughs> so that was an interesting one. So the, the officers um, had a totally different experience. Some of them had instruments lent by the lo local Turkish bands, and the one at Geddes, uh, this lovely old historian, took us downstairs into the council chambers, and in the basement was a drum and a trumpet and marching boots that had been lent to the prisoners to the officers and was still there. Wow. And when I saw that, I cried, he cried, you know, it was, um, it was lovely. Really moving. And they also could buy alcohol. They had raki, of course. Um, they said they described Balkan wine, Smyrna beer, local brandy, summed up by all remarkably bad. <laughs> <laughs> Didn't stop them though. Also libraries, you know, books were sent from both Britain and England, so they were swapping books constantly. And um, overall boredom, I think, was one of the major issues for them. What happened then at the end of the war? Well, it, it ended very quickly, obviously, and um, they were quickly removed from camps. Well, some of them moved themselves out of camps, just caught the local, if they were in Istanbul, caught the local train and went into town. Um, and some of them went on to the West Coast to be shipped home. 
they could decide if they wanted either to go straight back to Australia or go to Britain. Now, of course, probably 25% of them had British heritage, either born there or parents. So a lot of them elected to go to England. And uh, several spent months there being fated by relatives and, you know, just they had a good pay at the end, so accumulated pay, they had money to spend, um, and some of them to see, you know, home for the first time, I suppose. So once they got home, though, um, it was a, a different matter, I suppose. Many had years of fighting to get some sort of pension because some of them um, from their wounds, etc., or um, some of the epidemics that they'd had in Turkey, um, they spent quite a bit of time trying to get compensation for that. Others found, too, that um, life had changed. You know, there'd been social change, obviously, in Australia in that time. And one of my favourite young men from Geraldton in Western Australia, we went up, we actually found his house. His, house. his fiancée had a job, so she didn't have the time for to spend with him, and, and he found that rather daunting. And it was very quiet, of course. He'd spent three months in London being fated and having money to spend and, you know, having a great old time. So a lot of them found that difficult when they came home. And there, there was also a lot of propaganda around at the time too that uh, once the British had moved in and taken over, I found in the British archives several, a lot of documents where they refused to acknowledge that, you know, they'd been allowed to go to the camps, for example, to inspect them. And there was a lot of, I, I was almost thrown out once, once because I got so annoyed. I was probably saying not very nice words <laughs> at the time. Um, but yes, it was interesting, but also some of them started to elaborate on their experiences because several young men, particularly in Victoria, when they were welcomed home, they would often have a big welcome home party or reception, and he was left at the end every time. And the speaker said one stage, old Bob, you know, won't mind, you know, he, he didn't go on to the Western Front like the others, you know. And so his descriptions of the local paper became more and more extreme as time went on. And I think some of them felt that they were treated differently, um, which, was, which was very sad. Yeah, that is sad. So how many of the soldiers did you meet? Did you, did you manage to catch up with many? <laughs> no, none. No, if none. I'd, if, I'd, if I'd started this in the 1970s. Yes, I'm thinking time-wise. Yes, yeah. 70s, I would have met my lovely Lus, uh, Leslie Luscombe and quite a few of the others. But, no, I met some relatives and found other photographs through them, and uh, which was lovely. But, no, I wish I had. I wish I'd started this um, many, many years before. So why do you think there was so much um, misrepresentation? I understand, you know, the soldiers feeling bitter, but, mm. you know, the, the, the historical reports that were so inaccurate, why, why do you think that was? I think, again... Because they were so isolated, there was very little coming out of Turkey. Um, the American embassy for quite some time was their representatives and we found so much material going backwards and forwards between the American embassy and the British um, government, but that was never made public. So I think the lack of resources was obvious. The whole concept of revenge too was very strong at the time, you know, because they'd been sent over there Three years they were captive, so, you know, you can understand that. And again with the writings, most of them are focused, if they were historians, looking at the whole process of, of uh, capture. It's mostly concentrated in World War II. 
So nobody had gone into the British archives and collated that, and particularly not the Turkish ones. So that was a, that was a big issue, not being able to get into the, the Turkish archives. Several historians have looked at this. There's one by Paul Fussell called The Great War and Modern Memory, which is wonderful, and tries to unpack some of that. And another, Robin Gerster, The Rise of the POW Writer, um, just, I suppose, wanting particularly revenge, I suppose, of that, those three years, which would have been hard, particularly for the, the uh, lower ranks, but still not nearly as bad as some of them later made out. So what kind of response did your book get? It varied. There were some groups that weren't happy with, um, I suppose, Turks coming out of it a bit better than they thought they should and saying that obviously I had been biased because I'm married to a Turk who actually still says, for God's sake, don't do anything more Turkish. I'm not going to be locked in the archives forever. Um, it was an interesting time, actually. A lot of historians were delighted. I've been, um, I have used some of my material in some of the bigger histories, Australian World War I histories. But yes, I was quite shocked, actually, because I hadn't thought of that there are some groups that are very uh, sceptical of anything Turkish. I think we'll leave it at that. <laughs> well, thanks for your research, <laughs> hearing all about your research. It was so lovely of you to come in and chat with us about it today. Well, thank you, Joe, very much for having me. That concludes today's episode for The Thinking Traveller, a series brought to you by Academy Travel. To stay up to date with the latest conversations in this series, you can subscribe at Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you source your shows. For more information on Academy Travel's tour programme, to read other interesting articles written by their expert tour leaders, or to join them online for their lectures, short courses, and live on-site tours, visit academytravel.com.au. Until next time, I'm Joe Litson. Thank you for your company.